Some compare this family to the mafia, that they're kind of soprano-like. They're powerful, they're rich, they're very secretive. This is a story about a family and the country many would say they've destroyed. We're talking about already almost 10 years of war in Syria. We're talking about an economy that has shrunk to one-third of what it was 10 years ago. There are no numbers that can capture the scale of Syria's destruction. The United Nations hasn't been able to count the death toll for years. While the numbers are not exact, the deaths have slowed in recent months. But as Lebanese-American author Sam Dagger knows, the suffering can always get worse. He spent years reporting in Syria until the government kicked him out in 2014. We're talking about 80% of Syrians living in poverty, 40% unemployed, rampant inflation, basic goods like sugar, rice, flour, coffee, double or triple in price. And about the... I have three children and expecting a fourth child, and my income barely suffices. The prices are very high. We're going without meat and chicken. Living conditions are horrible. And at the same time, diesel, petrol, and gas are priced in dollars. It's really bad. But this week, there's a different number to mark. 20 years of rule for Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad, a man who wasn't meant for power. A quiet man who was lifted up by his family name and then consumed by it. Syria has paid a heavy price to keep the Assads in power. And today, we're talking about how that family brought us here. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. So I want to delve right into your book, Assad or We Burn the Country, very provocative title. It comes from a famous slogan in Syria. What does it mean and who is the we in that sentence? So it's basically arson graffiti. I spotted it on the walls of towns and neighborhoods that were retaken by the regime. So the regime takes back these destroyed and deserted areas, and the loyalists and the militiamen go in and they do the looting. We're talking about even removing the tiles, removing the copper wire, taking down the doors, I mean, everything, everything. I mean, what you see in these neighborhoods usually are like scraps of people's belongings, things that maybe the looters didn't deem to be of value, like a, you know, a, an old teddy bear or school books of the children. And then the loyalists and the militiamen would scrawl this graffiti on the walls. It's like Assad will stay, whether you like it or not, because otherwise uh, we're going to burn the country. We're going to make your lives hell. And it's also, in a way, the motto of this family that's been in power for 50 years. That's really the message. So much in that one phrase. This week marks 20 years since Bashar al-Assad took power in Syria. And this was, of course, to succeed his father, Hafiz al-Assad, who'd ruled Syria for 30 years. Can you tell me about what Syria was like at that time and what people expected from Bashar taking over? 
I would just take you back briefly 10 years before Bashar took power, so 1990. It was an extraordinary time. The Soviet Union collapsed. The Berlin Wall fell. Dictatorships were crumbling. What was seen as the traditional patron of the Assad regime, the Soviet Union, no longer existed. So the regime was in trouble. The economy was in trouble. So like reform was in the air. But all that the regime cared about was how to repackage itself in order for Hafez al-Assad to hand over the reins to his eldest son, Basil al-Assad, who was an army officer very much in the mold of the traditional leader of the Arab world. So everything was being done to pave the way for Basel to to take over. He dies in a car crash. The shy second son is summoned back from London, where he was content to be studying ophthalmology and wanted to live in Britain. This second son was Bashar, the new leader of the country and of the family. For years, he was overshadowed by his father, his brother, his sister. And then, all of a sudden, he's fast-tracked for succession, rushed through the military. The constitution is changed so that the minimum age for the president is not 40, but 34, Bashar's age. His election was a yes or no referendum on whether Syrians wanted him to be president. He won with at least 97% of the vote. And then he was sworn in. And then he was presented to his people as the savior, as the one who's going to open up Syria and who's going to reform the system. Dr. Bashar is in many ways the leader of the younger generation in Syria. He is the standard bearer of modernization. But the regime is very cynical. It's not that they actually were sincere about any of these changes or reforms. And Sam says Bashar was sending all the right signals, cracking down on corruption, reaching out to all sectors of Syrian society. Back in 2000, people were even calling it the Damascus Spring. And Syrians were taking notice. They're saying, wow, things are starting to change. Even like banning people, particularly officials, from going next door to Lebanon to shop for luxury goods because there were food shortages in Syria. So he cracked down on that. He was sending all the right signals. But what Syrians didn't know, that he was being mentored and tutored by people who had been empowered by his father to kill, torture, and disappear people because they had dared to speak out against the regime. It was, you know, these hardliners who were grooming him and telling him, yes, you can present yourself as a softer version of your father, but know that in order to hang on to power, you have to be as ruthless as your father, if not more. And even people commented at the funeral Hafez al-Assad, there was this almost like this block of a person who was devoid of any emotion, not even a tear in his eyes and, you know, nothing, just just blank. So the picture you're describing, how does that gel with this impression by Western governments that Bashar was a man we can do business with? That's what we heard. This is someone who hosted Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie in Damascus and other notables from around the world. What was going on 
to make sure that image was the one that was projected onto the world stage? I think it's a function of two things here. First, it was what the regime itself did, and also the perceptions by the West, by the US and the Europeans, or what they thought was in their best interest to believe. So in the first instance, it was the Bashar al-Assad showing that uh, he was different from his father, even the choice of, of who he's going to marry. Bashar married a woman who was different from Syria's previous first lady in many ways. For starters, she wasn't from his religious sect. The Assads are Alawite, a religious minority. His wife was from the Sunni majority. But it wasn't religion that got Asma al-Assad a feature in Vogue magazine. He decided to marry somebody who was born in the UK, who lived all her life abroad, practically British. And she was quite impressive, Asma al-Assad. I mean, this modern, attractive, assertive, who had a career in investment banking, was talking about going to Harvard Business School. Here's Asma in an interview from 2005. The issue here is not how Muslim women decide to dress. The issue is what are Muslim women doing in their societies today? It doesn't matter how we dress and what we look like. And Western leaders were like looking at that and saying, wow, this guy is really different. But also I think it suited their interest because remember, a number of things are happening at the time. This was the post 9-11 era, and the U.S. was looking for partners in the so-called war on terror. He shared intelligence with the Americans. He tortured people on behalf of the Americans. So the West had an interest to justify its engagement and cooperation with him by saying he is a reformer. So I know that a big part of that reform and a big part of changing that image was opening up Syria's economy. What did Syria's economy look like before this? For the longest time, it was the centrally planned economy. Uh, I would say hybrid, but the overall model was very much in the mold of the Soviet Union. But under Bashar, Sam says things began to change drastically. For the first time, you saw things like ATMs in Syria in the early 2000s. You, you didn't have that. Cell phone companies were established. Private schools joined ventures between Syrian business people and foreigners. But again, yes, I mean, they opened up, but everything remained under the control of the regime. You've got a quote in your book that discusses just how tightly controlled this economy is. You write, 10 families run Syria and control everything. This early period in Bashar's rule also brought the rise of another figure who plays prominently in, in, in Syria's today and in your book, Rami Makhlouf. Can you tell me about why it's a name that people should know? So Rami Makhlouf is Bashar's maternal cousin. Rami's father played the role of the regime's financier, and Hafez al-Assad's money man for the longest time. So in a way, Rami was following in that tradition and he was picked to fulfill that role of being the person who is going to make sure that any economic opening is going to benefit and enrich the family. The 50-year-old billionaire is considered the wealthiest and one of the most powerful men in Syria. 
Before the war began in early 2011, he controlled 60% of the economy. Can you give me some examples of things Rami Makhlouf controlled? I mean, everything, almost every sector of the economy, telecoms, real estate, aviation, even milk. I mean, like the carton milk that you get in the supermarket. I mean, everything, everything. His business empire includes real estate, electricity, tourism, oil trading. His fortune, largely built from commissions paid to him by business people, which is why some people call him Mr. 5%. At one point, he was telling ambassadors based in Damascus that if you wanted to do business in Syria, you have to come through me. I mean, two ambassadors told me that, two former French ambassadors to Syria, including the last ambassador to Syria, Eric Chevalier, who had lunch with him a couple of times and described him as acting like the king of Syria saying, I'm in control, everything happens through me, puffing on his cigar. Maybe some of this really got into his head. But at the end of the day, it was a power that he derived from Bashar al-Assad, who could take it away from him any time. So I want to bring us into today because the economy has disintegrated since the start of the uprising, 2011. But this past year has really shown how bad things could get. What led to this? I mean, obviously, it's an accumulation of what's been happening over the past decade. But I would say what happened last fall in neighboring Lebanon really accelerated this process. Lebanon's banks have been the engine for Syria's sanctions-hit economy. But this country has been in political and economic turmoil, forcing banks to control access to cash and prevent transfers abroad. Lebanon has always served as this economic pressure valve, not only for the regime, but also for average Syrians. A lot of Syrians had their savings, life savings, in Lebanese banks. One analyst told me that Syrians had $1 billion in deposits in Syria itself versus $40 billion of Syrian deposits in Lebanon. And then what happens in Lebanon? The whole banking system crashes, protests on the streets of Lebanon. So really that outlet that the Syrians had shuts down and the situation becomes progressively worse in Syria. I mean, I'll share with you one anecdote. Of course, the value of the Syrian pound itself diminishes greatly to 3000 to $1 just recently. And that's down from 700 pounds to the dollar in the last year. The latest drop was also sparked by the announcement of new U.S. sanctions on Syria. So Syrians were posting photos of Syrian banknotes on Twitter saying they're so worthless now that we can actually use them as cigarette wrapping paper, you know, for tobacco or to wrap our falafel sandwiches. I mean, that's how worthless they are. In response to this nosedive in the economy, Bashar al-Assad turned to crony capitalists that he had empowered 20 years ago, and that includes his cousin, Rami Makhlouf. So from Makhlouf, he specifically wanted $230 million in back taxes. It can only be described as a shakedown. What happened next? What are we seeing now? I mean, you you mentioned a shakedown, yes. 
This is a spectacular falling out between Syria's richest man and Assad. Makhlouf said he won't step down from Syriatel, one of the country's biggest firms, but he's already been barred from traveling and his assets have also been seized. Some people view it as that the Assad family has finished devouring the state and its resources and now they started to devour each other. I mean, it wasn't only Makhlouf that was targeted. Other businessmen were also targeted. And it seems like they all quietly agreed to pay whatever the regime was asking for. Because remember, the economy is in a very dire state and the regime needed cash urgently. So the cash-strapped government turns to the businessmen that it empowered in the first place, asking for money. Most of them paid up, but Rami Makhlouf resists. And he puts out these Facebook videos. Security agencies have started to arrest our workers. Who would have expected that intelligence agencies would come to Rami Makhlouf's companies when I was their biggest supporter and their biggest servant during the war? Unfortunately, things have changed. In these videos, Bashar al-Assad's right-hand man is appealing to him directly. His cousin, his patron, with whom he built a 20-year symbiotic relationship. But he's also appealing to the regular members of their religious sect, to the Alawites, most of whom are far from the riches of the Assad inner circle. He's saying we sacrificed everything for the regime. Our sons were killed so that this regime would remain. We expected the fruits of the so-called victory to materialize. But instead, you're going after an important figure. I mean, this was Rami's message, who has been instrumental in supporting people. Uh, I mean, yes, all of that was true to some extent. He was helping people, but he was not doing it for free. He expected people to be loyal to him. So suddenly there was talk of this rift in the inner circle. People were concerned that could it expose a rift in the Alawite community itself that has supplied the the, the bulk of the fighting forces for the regime. For now, it seems like Rami may have agreed to pay up what he owed, because I don't think it's in the interest of both Bashar and Rami for this to escalate any further into an all-out clash that would risk dividing the community. And where does that leave Bashar? 20 years on, and we're heading towards another election in 2021, as impossible as that sounds. Do you think there is a clear picture of where that leaves him? I mean, he has survived, yes, but at what price? So this family can say it has been in power now for half a century. But I think what people are missing is that Bashar al-Assad is at his weakest point ever. He is only there because the Russians and Iranians want him to be there. He's only able to maintain his position by playing off his two patrons against each other. Also, remember, this is a regime that has always derived its power from the army, from the security forces. Well, guess what? The army does not exist anymore. Yes, you have certain battalions and divisions that the Russians try to train to sort of put this army back together. But people who consider themselves even loyalists and supporters of Bashar al-Assad don't want to serve in the army. They'd rather leave the country. So what army are we talking about? Sam says the only thing left for the government is to rule by fear. But even that isn't working. 
A rare show of anger on the streets of Sueda. Syrians shout anti-regime slogans evocative of the 2011 uprising. I mean, you're seeing Syrians come out and protest in areas like Swaida, southwest of Damascus, coming out openly on the street with their faces shown, saying, we've had enough, we can't take it anymore, we want Bashar al-Assad to go. So really, add to that the dire economic situation and the fact that the regime really cannot offer Syrians much at this point. So really, I would say the regime is at its weakest. Sam, your book is almost 500 pages long, so there's so much we can't fit into this interview. But it's called Assad or We Burn the Country. Has the outcome been both? Unfortunately, yes. This is what I'm reminded by many Syrians. Like, it seems like he stayed and he also burned the country. This slogan even applies to this moment that we're living in. The paradox is he's staying and life is getting a lot worse for Syrians. But I'm also, I think, hopeful, believe it or not, because Syrians are not the same. I mean, the country is destroyed, at least half a million people killed, families shattered. So uh, the, the cost is huge. But Syrians have been transformed by their struggle for freedom and for dignity and for justice. And they see it as a continuum. I mean, this is what the people in Swaida are saying, that it's not over. Yes, we've had all of these horrors over the past 10 years. But guess what? Our grievances are still the same. Living in this system where your most basic rights as a human being depend on your proximity to power. People want justice. People want dignity. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Dina Kispe, Priyanka Tilve, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. Graylin Bouchier is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back on Friday. <laughs>